I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Coming up on the next episode of Trade Guys, we'll talk about Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's speech on China, the South Korean state visit, and EU digital regulations, all on the next episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, our Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, gave a monumental speech last week, or at least a big speech. What was her overall message? Treasury Secretary obviously has a fundamental role in economic policy in any administration. And so she chose as a subject better U.S.-China relations, which I found quite interesting. First of all, I found I basically agreed with what she had to say. She said that while we're going to put uh, very strong protections on our national security assets, and that's of paramount importance, she went on to say that we ought to have cooperation between the U.S. and China on the urgent global challenges. And we ought to proceed with commercial activities within the international rules system, that that's good for the U.S. and good for the world. So that theme was, frankly, music to my ears. And that's probably the first time I've heard it from this administration quite directly of referring to the importance of sort of rules-based commercial transactions. The national security focus was not new, but looked... The Treasury Secretary usually speaks loudly to the world on the administration's economic priorities. And if she's articulating the priorities we're seeing going forward, I would expect a lot more focus at things like building capability and capacity at the World Trade Organization to really deliver on the promise of the rules-based system. I would expect to see more focus on settling disputes based on rules. We're not doing that at the moment as consistently as the secretary outlined for the future. But I also like the fact that it was, while there was clearly a delineation on national security issues, there was no sense of panic about China as an enemy, which I think is a sensible uh, middle ground on this whole uh, demonizing China, which tends to happen with a lot of political figures. It didn't happen in the speech, which I found refreshing. So, Bill, what did I miss? I agree with you. I, my column this week was on China whack-a-mole. Yeah, it was a rant about China. Well, yeah, and I, it got misinterpreted by several readers who thought I was being too soft on China. Uh, and I suspect Yellen may come in for similar criticism, although neither one of us should. But, you know, they're... You're not she, soft on China. She's trying to square the circle of, of maintaining a strong national security uh, posture, which the Chinese interpret as an antagonistic posture. And if you look at what we've done, in term, particularly in terms of export controls and you know, a growing number of sanctions and pressures on them with respect to Russia and Ukraine, you know, it, it is an antagonistic policy. And uh, what we're doing on the, the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act and other things we've talked about. But you know, she also wants to leave the door open to 
trying to maintain rational economic relationship since, you know, which is actually has gotten more intense despite all the politics and despite all the talk. We do more trade with them than ever before. And that's continued to that's continued to grow. And I think she wants to basically tell the people that are hysterical, don't be hysterical. You know, let's approach this rationally which is sort of what I was was trying to do. But then predictably, the people that are hysterical come back and say, well, you're soft on China. The thing that is a little bit distressing, and Scott identified it, is we expect the same problem with Jake Sullivan's speech, which will occur shortly after we're recording this podcast, that no mention of the WTO, no, no mention of the rules. It's all about what we're going to do, what the United States is going to do, what we need to do to uh, grow our economy and what we need to do to push back against Chinese unfair or otherwise aggressive actions. And in a way, it, it repeats a theme that we've seen from in this administration from the beginning, which I think is kind of a condescending theme, which irritates me. What, sort of, you know, the old world is gone and we're in a new world and we need to do things differently. And what we're doing differently is we're taking care of ourselves. And the fact that we're doing it at the expense of the rules uh, and at the expense of institutions and at the expense of other countries, that's old think. That doesn't matter. We need to focus on our reconstruction, if you will. And I support industrial policy. I've been I've supported industrial policy for 40 years, and I like the, the, the running faster part of the equation. What seems to be missing from multiple administration accounts is any sense that maybe the rules are actually good and that we ought to try to do what we're doing within the framework of the rules. And I think Secretary Yellen probably believes that, but she didn't, you know, she didn't mention it. And, you know, the consequence is that even though we deny it, our government denies it. And actually, even though the Chinese government denies that we're forcing our companies to choose between the two countries, in fact, we're pursuing policies that force them to choose. You know, the Biden policies are really come back here. Don't take any, you can't use any Chinese minerals in your EV batteries. Can't deal with countries of concern. You can't accept anything from China that's made with forced labor. I mean, these are not by themselves bad things. I mean, the, the prohibitions, but they force companies to choose, uh, even though we're saying we're not doing that. If I had a, a criticism, it would be the lack of comprehensiveness of any of these programs. Look, you say you wanted to couple from China. Okay, well, to do that, you have to have some other source for the materials. Either you do some things that make manufacturing, particularly sort of light industrial manufacturing, more economical in the United States, or you develop it in close partners. See, for me, the missed opportunity for any of this nearshoring would be Mexico, but that would take the United States working very hard with the government of Mexico to, to ensure that they have the capacity to grow and that we can work it out within the rules of both WTO and, and USMACA to develop it's sort of the, the North American supply chains. That takes work. And so it's one thing to say we wanted to couple from China, but unless you do the work on the rest of the policies. And we have, we have incompatible goals and they're, they're not really addressing that. I mean, right now, if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act, you know, there, there's really three goals there. Let's accelerate the transition to green in various fora. Let's accelerate, you know, combating climate change. Let's do that with increased domestic production and more domestic jobs and more reshoring. Friendshoring or nearshoring is plan B. It's on the list, but it's not at the top of the list. And three, let's 
try to do that within the rules-based framework. And so far, it's the rules-based framework that's losing. You can't do all three of those things at the same time. And so far, the rules-based framework is losing. And really, in another, in one, another way, the transition to green is losing too, because if you insist on a domestic framework for your production and manufacturing, you've got to create those capabilities here. And that means you've got to create mineral processing facilities here or in Canada or Chile or somewhere nearby. And you've got to find ore deposits and, and figure out how to extract and exploit them. And that takes time. And the restrictions on eligibility for the tax credits, if you don't do that, kick in next year. And, and in subsequent years. And doing that is going to take longer than the next nine months. And so, in effect, what the administration has done is they've slowed down the green transition in the name of domestic production. Now, they're both noble goals, but I think what the administration doesn't want to address is the fact that you can't achieve them all at the same time. And they're choosing, de facto, without articulating a policy, but the effect is the rules go out the window and accelerating the transition to green gets slowed down and the turn towards domestic manufacturing gets bumped up without doing anything about the shortage of workers. Well, let me ask you this. So the Biden administration is decidedly not soft on China, and there's a lot of evidence of that. But did her speech make it seem that they are? A little bit. I think she'll be criticized for that from the, the, the China hawks in the Congress. I mean, she's a very nice person, and I think people don't like to go after her. But people will say it reflects the view that we can work things out with China. We have to maintain our national security goals. We have to maintain a tough line on national security. But let's stop the hysteria. Let's stop the paranoia. And let's try to have a manageable economic relationship with them as we have had in the past. And I think there's a lot of people, particularly in Congress, who would say, you know, that's nice, but it's impossible because the Chinese don't want to do that and the Chinese cheat and break the rules and we shouldn't continue to let them get away with it. And so the people that are paranoid, you know, are basically reflecting Henry Kissinger's old, old line about, you know, even paranoids have real enemies. And in this case, they would say it's the Chinese. Interesting. I think she is subject to criticism on this. It is a different message qualitatively than we've heard from the rest of the administration when they talk about China, but should be seen as being out of date. It's like, this is a great policy for 2004, okay? But it's 2023, almost 2024. We got bigger problems now, and we've got to deal with them differently. Now, that puts us in the position of giving a lot of lectures, and we tend to give the lectures instead of really building an alternative structure that would pressure China. You know, we've walked away from expanding trade agreements among our Pacific, Asia and Pacific partners. You know, we're, we're just, there's a bunch of things we're not doing. And so you'd have to actually do them if you wanted the secretary's strategy to work. You put your finger on it, Scott. That's what frustrates me is sort of the condescension of this. The idea that we in the administration, we figured out the new world and the rest of you are stuck in the old world doing old things, old ideas that are no longer relevant to what is going on in reality. And I just think that's a gross oversimplification of what's of, of what's going on. You know, we spent a pile of time building institutions, building rules. And, you know, I think it's simplistic just to throw them out and say they don't apply anymore. So that's a bit of a mini rant right there. Yeah, I'm, I'm building up to a bigger one. At a, not, not today, but at a later date, I'll probably do, do a column on this. But it, it's 
you know, in a sense, they're kind of creating, you know, straw men about, you know, uh, the, one of the, the debates that is going to come up. I was reading an article about it this morning by a former Biden administration person that said, you know, well, the old thing is that the trade issue is tariffs. And if we just lower tariffs, everything will be fine. And that's a real misstatement of you know, of the traditional approach to trade. Yeah, it was about tariffs. And in, in the 50s and 60s, tariffs were a big thing. But it's also about non-tariff barriers. It's, it's also about removing obstacles to uh, more trade and more investment. And what we're getting now from the administration is, you know, some of these obstacles are, A, some of these obstacles are good. We don't want to remove them. And in other cases, they're, they're sort of saying, you know, we're not, we're not focused on reciprocity. You know, the U.S. view, if you look, IPEF is a good example, is U.S. view. And this came up the other day. We had a closed door session on, you know, with with our negotiators of IPEF. And one of the questions was the, the, one, the one that comes up in every single meeting we have, which is, you know, are you planning to do anything that's reciprocal? You know, are you planning to make any concessions on anything? Tariffs are off the table, but there's a lot of other stuff. And, and one of the topics is agriculture which always arouses a lot of interest in other countries because they want to access our market. And it's so we're not talking about tariffs. So are we talking about sanitary and phytosanitary rules? Are we talking about, you know, U.S. sugar subsidies and sugar quotas? You know, and the answer is always that, no, we're not talking about that because what we want to do is, you know, embed U.S. practice as much as we can into these agreements. And what that really is saying is we want everybody else to do what we're doing. So we're not going to change anything. And oh, that's fine. You know, I mean, that's nice that we could get that. But that's not really the way negotiations work. Well, there was a comment made by a former Treasury Secretary, one uh, Larry Summers, that kind of summarizes how this shows up with our trading partners. Secretary Summers was having a discussion with a foreign leader and was asked about the difference between policy from China versus policy from the United States. And he says, well, look, you know, China shows up and we wind up agreeing to build an airport. The United States shows up and we get a lecture. And this is the risk that we're we're taking by setting aside reciprocity, setting aside the fact that we do have common interests with our trading partners. And we can, when we work together to achieve those interests, both both economies do better. It's a missing element and it's it's getting harder to explain, so. And I do like summaries from Summers. That could be a podcast, you know? Yeah. Well done, Scott. There you go. Well, let's switch to another topic. We can stay in Asia. South Korean President Yoon is here for a state visit. Big talk about nuclear agreement, but what kinds of trade reassurances is President Yoon seeking from the Biden administration? There was very little mention of that in the outcome. And I talked this morning to someone who was who was at the dinner and was following this fairly closely and said, you know, most of the discussion ended up being about closer uh, relations, particularly on, on nuclear, but closer military relations. There was not a lot of talk about economics, uh, partly, I think, because some of the Korean concern has has faded a little bit. The car companies now seem to be more relaxed about the situation. They've they've done exactly what, gives Scott and me credit, exactly what we predicted last fall, which is companies don't sit around and wait for a miracle from the government. Go ahead and figure out what they're going to do, expecting no miracle. And this is what Kia and Hyundai have done. You know, they've announced plans to accelerate their, you know, assembly production plans here in the United States, which covers one base. 
they've worked with the Treasury Department to deal with the, you know, try to get interpretations of basically the difference between components and minerals in the EV tax credit issue that is uh, allows for a little more generous interpretation that will, you know, allow them to develop supply chains that meet the standards. I mean, it, it's not easy for Koreans because they're heavily dependent on China for components and, and minerals. But then again, everybody's dependent on China for minerals. So everybody's racing for, for alternatives to that. And Korea has an advantage. They have a free trade agreement so already. So they don't have to go through the what the EU and the Japan are going through to sort of invent an agreement and then pretend that it's a real agreement in order to qualify. They already qualify. And what we're hearing now from the car companies is, you know, this is under control. This is, this is okay. It's not great, but we'll figure it out. The, the missing piece, and I was a little disappointed there was no comment on it, was on the export control side, because we spent a good bit of time working with Taiwan on chips and with Japan and on chips and tools and with the Dutch on tools. Uh, the Koreans are major producers of chips, not only from Korea, all over the world, including here and including China. But there are two big companies, Hynix, SK Hynix and Samsung, have factories in China that are producing chips that are affected by our controls. And we gave them a one-year waiver. Otherwise, they would have had to take some people out. And we gave them a one-year waiver on that, which is up in October. And they're already concerned about whether that's going to be extended. And I was kind of hoping there'd be discussion about that this week. But as near as I can tell, there has not been. That's a fair summary. The existence of the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement has solved a lot of the commercial problems. So if you want to look for it, uh, one, of, one of those free trade agreements that gets so much criticism that seems to be working fairly well, it would be the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement. That's why there's few squabbles on the, on the agenda. But Bill's right. The commercial issues, commercial industries are kind of well and things are going pretty well, but it's the national security side, both the, the defense side and the export control side that could use some attention. Got it. All right, guys, last concept today that we want to talk about is what's going on in Europe. Bill, the Scholl Chair has conducted work on the implication of the EU's digital regulations on US and EU economic and strategic interests. What were your findings? Well, the main thing we looked at were existing EU rules, which meant the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act in particular, and trying to call up my data here. But basically, what we concluded was that implementation of those provisions, which is now underway, it's not finished, but it's in progress, will cost American companies as much as, I think, $51 billion to simply to comply with the European rules. And it will produce added costs in Europe, which means to European consumers and European companies of up to 71 billion euros, which is a lot. In addition, uh, the larger downstream problem, which is not a quantifiable problem, is what it really does is open the door to the Chinese, which is something we pointed out to the Europeans, both in the paper and in subsequent conversations. What the Digital Services Act does is require the EU to identify a wonderful new acronym, Andrew, VLOPS, Very Large Online Platform Services. VLOPS. VLOPS. V is in very. And it sounds like a children's book. Well, the EU did that yesterday. They produced 19, which include the four Google entities, Apple, 
think Amazon is on the list and a number of others. And actually one Chinese entity, AliExpress, is on it, but that's the only one. And what we projected will happen is, and what was, I think the Europeans deny it, but what was clearly intent is, you know, big American platforms operate in Europe and make it more difficult for them to compete. The rationale was, you know, we Europeans don't have comparable entities. We want to develop comparable entities. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to tie the Americans' hands so we can develop them. One of the things we pointed out is, A, that's not likely to develop them in in Europe. It's going to take more than tying the Americans' hands. But B, if you tie the Americans' hands, you open the door to Chinese competitors coming in and doing exactly what the Americans have done, which is taking over the service provider market for digital services. So expect more Alibaba and you know, more things like that in Europe. And, you know, eventually they will be big enough to be a VLOPS, okay, which means you have to have more than 45 million users. But right now they're not, with one exception. But in a few years they will be, and then they'll be subject to these requirements. In the meantime, the American companies will have lost revenue, have lost market share, and will be handicapped in Europe, and I think with no sign of European competitors on the horizon. Yes, I, I do think that there is a Dr. Seuss book in our in our library here, <laughs> VLOP Here's a Who, uh, but <laughs> I could have that wrong. Uh, it was one of these things. Look, the Europeans have lived completely up to expectations here, or or down to expectations, depending on your point of view. So, Andrew, just a quick quiz. The European Commission named it 19 VLOPs. How many of these VLOPs are of European headquartered firms? Zero would be the correct answer. Wow. Zero. So once again, we have this is classic European Commission action. First, they want the first mover advantage to regulate first and let everybody else follow. But what they wind up with is some kind of incumbent protection racket. So usually that happens intra-EU. There's some wonderful stories about vacuum cleaner regulations by the commission. You'll recall the Dyson vacuum cleaner, which was a breakthrough and a vastly superior performance as a vacuum versus those with bags. And Dyson was a British company at the time Britain was in the European Union, and they tried to get these things on the market. And basically, it was the German bagged manufacturers of bagged vacuums that held it up. Protecting incumbents is kind of how the commission's instincts tend toward. And they've certainly done that here. Look, the problem with it is Europe has a problem with innovation, and this does nothing, despite hampering American firms and one Chinese firm. It does nothing to accelerate innovation in Europe. I mean, look, regulation of data, sure, you can regulate data, but you have to manipulate data to create innovation in services. Any of these computer services require a new use of data. So it's it's not what what the data is, it's how you use it. And they've completely missed this in the regulations. So all they're doing is adding cost. They're making it harder for, for European consumers and more costly for European consumers, and probably slowing down their own innovators if they really if they if they had enough to measure. I should correct myself. There are two Chinese entities on the list. The other one is TikTok. Ah, uh, yes, TikTok and Alibaba, yeah, AliExpress. You know, it's cold blooded to keep a powerful vacuum cleaner from the people. Yes. Well, it happens all the time. Dirty houses all over Europe, you know. And look, at some point, we can criticize Europe. But what really needs to happen is the United States needs to be in the rulemaking business. We need to figure out what it is in the digital economy that is best for consumers and translate that into a set of neutral rules. 
rules that are neutral in both concept and application, and promote that through a series of reciprocal trade agreements. I mean, that's how you that's how you deal with this sort of thing. And so it's it's really not Europe's fault that Europe is being Europe. You know, the administration also is being criticized by business for not actively opposing this as much as business would like. And in fact, it's going beyond that. There are sort of dueling cranky letters going on about this. And the Chamber of Commerce and some other associations sent a cranky letter to the administration, I think it was last week, complaining, among other things, that the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission were sending their representatives over to Europe to talk to the Europeans about how American companies can comply with the Digital Markets Act. So from the Chamber's standpoint, basically, they're telling the Europeans how to enforce the law against American companies rather than trying to defend American companies against what the Europeans are doing. Gentlemen, thank you, as always, for your insights. Terrific conversation today. And I wish all of you a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.